0: You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. But Ephesians chapter 2. Again, we've been walking through this little section uh, talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and what God's been doing in the middle of the in the middle of these two groups and bringing them together and making peace. And uh, we'd just like to read just this little section that begins in verse 19 and goes down to verse 22, just so it's fresh in our mind. Uh, We've been walking through the last few uh, sessions, but let's just read it afresh. So, this is Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 19. Uh, Paul writes, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the entire building, tightly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Uh, we've been, again, just for a quick refresh, we've been talking about the fact that uh, we are no longer strangers and foreigners. That we as Gentiles, who have always been pushed off, who have never had access who have never had the privileges, have been brought in. And as Paul says, uh, there's this new dynamic that is taking place, and he gives three pictures to describe it. One, you are a citizen. Isn't that a great thought that you have all the privileges of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? You're not just some visitor. You're not just some uh, stranger or foreigner or alien. You have all the rights and all the privileges and all the prestige of being a citizen in the kingdom of God, now there are requirements if you're a citizen, like you get to pay taxes in this country. Praise the Lord, uh, you get to vote, conceptually in this country, right? Uh, so there are there are privileges, there are responsibilities, there are all that there's that kind of stuff. That's that's true in the kingdom of God, that there is responsibilities in the kingdom of God. Uh, there are privileges in the kingdom of God, uh, primarily the fact that you have access to the king. Right, that you get to demonstrate his character and his life. And, and now you have the responsibility, if you want to use that word, to go and actually increase the kingdom. That you are to share this thing. Uh, he uses the language of family. That, that you've been brought in and you are a member of the household of God. That you're not some mere servant. You actually get to sit down at the table with the family. And you get to partake of the DNA of the family. We literally take on the life of Jesus Christ. And you have not, you're not just merely a citizen, but you're also a member of the family. And then he uses this language of a building uh, in verse 20. <clears throat> and he says that there's this building that you are. So not only are you a citizen, you're a part of the family, but you're also this building thing. And we've looked at that the last couple sessions. But this idea of the building is interesting. It says that this building, uh, verse 20, is built upon this foundation. Well, what's the foundation? Well, it's the apostles and the prophets. But it is Jesus Christ himself which is the chief cornerstone. And just as a reminder, we looked at this last time, but the cornerstone idea, it's the first thing that is laid when you're building. And all the other stones get their alignment and their position from the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the focal point of the building, which is a neat thought with Jesus. Uh, It is usually laid at the corner to bind two walls together and to strengthen them. The cornerstone determines the structural integrity of the building, and symbolically it is often used as a symbol of strength and prominence. That is who Jesus is. He is our cornerstone. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our strong tower. He is our immovable foundation, uh, which is just a beautiful thought. Uh, And this last time, we were also looking at the fact that this building, which has this foundation as the apostles and the prophets, Uh, is tightly framed together, or uh, fitly framed together. And if if you remember this from last week, it was this idea, it's these three words, this has this idea that they are tightly joined together, that there is this harmony between the the pieces. And the idea is is that here is this master builder who goes to this quarry, it's not bricks, because bricks are identical, uh, bricks are made in bulk, uh, and, and you're not that. Right? You have quirks. You have oddities. You have problems. And if you didn't know that, I'm just, am the Lord is using me in your life to tell you that you have serious problems. Some of you more than others. But, but God's going to have to cl- give you clar- clarity on that. <clears throat> but, but regardless, God, uh, here's this master builder who goes to this quarry and he's he has this spot in the building that he he needs a certain kind of rock about this size and it's going to... And so he goes through this quarry and he finds the perfect rock to fit that part of the building. And so he again, you're not a brick. So he's not just grabbing random bricks and just building this building. He's building this like, it's a rock wall, rock building kind of an idea. So he goes and finds the perfect rock, comes over to the building and puts it there and goes, ah, that's going to fit perfectly with the other ones. But there's this little corner of this rock that's going to have to be removed so that it actually fits in harmony with the other ones. So what is the master builder doing? Well, he takes out his file and he shaves it down or he takes his little, I don't know what they have, the little chisel, thank you. (laughs) I was like, those things, right? And they just, they break off pieces or edges and you realize that's what God's doing in our life. He is sanctifying our life. Why? So that we can harmoniously fit together in this building called the Bride of Christ. That we are a building, which is an odd thought at one level, right? But we are a bride, but we are also a building. And we are harmoniously being fit together as this building. So in this whole thing, uh, if you look at verse 21, again it says, In whom this entire building, which is tightly framed together, is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together as a dwelling place, Of God through the Spirit. So when you look at this building idea, which is what I want to focus on, the building is not just a building, the building is a temple. And not just a temple, it is the temple and it is the dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Now, when you get into this idea, it's interesting that there are two main verbs in this little section one of those is grows, and the other one is being built. So this building is growing up into a temple and this building is being built as a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Now, what's interesting about all this, and if you're not a nerd, I apologize. Just hang tight. Uh, But what's interesting about this is that both of those verbs grows and being built is in the indicative, which means it's a simple statement of fact. This isn't up for question. This isn't, well, maybe we get to grow up into, into a temple. This is... No, do you know what's happening? You're growing up into a temple. He is building you up as a dwelling place. So this is not for argument. This is not for question. This is just a simple statement of fact that this is what God is doing. That's incredible to me. All right, I'm the least excited. But there's an interesting difference between the two words. The word grow, again, it has this idea of to grow, but it's in the active, in the active voice, which means the building itself is the one who is growing itself up as a holy temple. that make any sense? So the building is responsible for doing the action of growing. But the word being built, the word is passive, meaning God himself is the one doing the action who is doing the building up as the dwelling place. that make any sense? So there's like this twofold reality: the building is growing up it's doing the action of becoming a temple and yet it's being acted upon by god who is causing it to be built up as the dwelling place which reminds me a lot of like the philippians uh, i think i have it here philippians uh, chapter 2 verse 12 and 13 and I, I i love this thought paul in philippians 2 says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling yeah, so you're to work out your own salvation. Praise the Lord. So I am the one responsible for doing the action of working out my own salvation. But the very next line in verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So is, so am I the one responsible for, for working out my own salvation, or is it God working in my life who is working out my salvation? Yes. That's the answer. Because this is not me being passive and sitting on a couch eating bonbons waiting for God to do something in my life, right? That, that God is, yes, God is doing something. And yes, he's working in my life. But I am actively involved doing the action itself as well. So like there's this coming together of this twofold reality where I'm doing the action, but he's doing the action. So who's doing the action? Yes, we are doing the action. And that seems like what's happening here in the passage where we as the corporate body the temple are growing up into the temple, so so yeah, we're doing this thing. We're growing. We're we're hey, we're we're progressing. At the same time, he's the one who's working in our life, and he's the one who's actually doing the action of building us up into a dwelling place. So who's doing action? Well, don't maybe don't worry about that. Just press in, and let your life be acted upon by God to to create you into a dwelling place. At the same time, you need to be aggressively moving forward, growing up into being a temple. Which I think is just, again, I think it's just a beautiful thought that this isn't a, as the body of Christ will just sit here and God will do everything. That's not biblical. But neither is it biblical that, oh, God's going to do nothing and I have to do everything. That's not biblical either. It's somehow we're coming together and we're doing this thing and I'm active and he's active, and somehow in the active of both of us doing it, we're, I'm becoming something. All right, do whatever you want with all that. <clears throat> Again, we are growing up into a temple. He is acting upon us and building us up as a dwelling place for God. And you realize the language of a dwelling place and the language of temple is biblically the same thing. In other words, the temple is the dwelling place. Oh, what's the dwelling place? It's a temple. Right? It's that kind of an idea. Now, what I'd like to do, though, is I just want to cause us to meditate on the idea of when you go back into the Old Testament and you look at a, the temple or the tabernacle and, and you look at what it was for, it's interesting that when you, when you look and analyze what the temple or the tabernacle was used for, it's the exact same thing that we as Christians are called to be. Now again, we're not talking some abstract principle or building or some structure. We're talking about the reality of this, what what God was doing as a foreshadow with a building is to be the corporate body. And what's interesting about this whole thing is we're talking not you, we're talking corporately, that we are the body of Christ, that that we are the temple, uh, we are the dwelling place. And yet, while that's true, I am So there is this dual reality of, yes, it's corporate. Yes, we're talking about the church. Yes, we're talking about the body of Christ. But at the same point, I'm like a miniature version of that. And I don't have a good picture of that, but it's like I'm a miniature temple. And though I'm a miniature temple, I'm actually only a little piece of the real temple. However you want to figure that out. But again, I'm a piece, but I'm also the whole. All right, let's just move on. It's getting convoluted already. Uh <clears throat> But I love that thought that we're not just talking about the corporate body as if, you know, I get to be the, you know, the the vent over the heater, you know, I'm like, well, at least I get to be a piece of something. You know, I guess I I at least get to be the lint in the belly button of the body of Christ, right? At least I have a role, you know, <clears throat> which is oh, uh, it's there, right? It's At least I get to be a part of it. Yeah, that's true, but in the other sense, I am the the temple. I am the dwelling place. I am the, I love that dual reality in this whole thing. But let me give you six things that when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the temple and the tabernacle, there are six, at least I could understand it, six primary things that the temple or the tabernacle was that we as the body of Christ also get to partake in. So let's just go through these. Uh, Number one, the Old Testament temple was set apart and it was a holy place. In the mind of a Jew, the temple was the most holy place in the entire universe. And I didn't bring out the whole quote, but there's this great quote by one of the Jewish rabbis who said, "Uh, "The entire universe." You know, God picked our galaxy, and out of our galaxy, God picked our solar system, and out of our solar system, God picked our planet as the most holy planet out of all of that. But even out of our planet, God chose one country, and out of that country, He chose one city, and out of that city, He chose one little spot called the Temple Mount. And on that Temple Mount, there was this thing called the Temple. And even in the Temple, there were gradients of holiness. Right? You had the outer courts, which even the Gentiles and the women could go to. Then you had the inner courts, which were the priestly area where they do this, you know, the, the, the worship and the, the incense and all that kind of stuff. But then there was the most holy place, which was the Holy of Holies. And so in the mind of a Jew, the temple was the most holy place in the entire universe. Now, when you actually look at the—I looked it up this morning just to make sure—but they— Now again, who knows? And who on earth is counting all these things? I have no idea. But they estimate that in just the Milky Way galaxy, so just our little galaxy, which has our sun and our little solar system, just in our galaxy, there's estimated to be between 100 and 400 billion stars or solar systems. So we're just one. So our sun, our our solar system with our planets is just one of somewhere between one and 400 billion, just in the Milky Way. But that's just one galaxy out of an estimated 200 billion galaxies. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how you— and by the way, I'm still trying to figure out who is, who's been counting because that's, that's insane. One, two. I mean, this poor guy who's like getting paid by NASA just to count. But But you realize we're told in Scripture that God holds the entire universe in the palm of his hand. And yet it is so mind-boggling. I love looking at the pictures of the space stuff. I love the NASA pictures. Cause, Cause you look at these dots and you're like, wow, those are that those are incredible stars. And they're like, those aren't stars. Those ones are galaxies that have billions of stars within them. And it it is so mind-numbing to think about how massive our universe is. And yet the universe compared to God is just winkadink. It is so it just fits in the palm of his hand. And yet. God knows the number of hairs on your head, or lack thereof, for a few few people, right? But, but, But God knows that. And so he is so immense and so big, and yet he is so intimate with the small details. And isn't it an amazing thought that the temple in the Jewish mind, the temple of the Old Testament, was the holiest place in that entire universe? That there is no other place more holy than that temple. Uh, I love what Exodus 40, verse 9 says. God says, You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and you shall hallow it, or make it holy, and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. That here is this dwelling place, here is this building, the tabernacle, which later became the temple, that this place was holy. It was set apart. It was consecrated. Now, you realize that for a Jew to call anything holy like that place is would be considered blasphemy. You would not look at a person and say, hey, you are holy. Now, we know God has called us to be holy. We understand that. But to call ourselves or put ourselves on the same level of the temple, you realize how blasphemous that would be. Do you know how more crazy it would be to look at a Gentile and call the Gentile like the temple, call it holy like the temple. And yet Paul does that twice. And of course you know these, but 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? And then a couple of chapters later in chapter six, verse 19 and 20, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul says, he's looking at this church that's mixed with Jews and Gentiles, and he says, do you know what you are? You are the temple, which would have been blasphemy. Not just blasphemy, but like blasphemy. Because you would never call a person a temple. The temple is the most holy place. And yet Paul says, no, 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 that's what you become. And he's talking to to a Gentile church. Do you know how crazy this would have been in, in the mind of the Jews listening to this whole thing? And yet, what are, we, what are we to be in the new covenant? We are to be holy. We are, are to be set apart. We are to be without spot and blemish. That it, it is an amazing reality, and of course we're getting close to Christmas. It's an amazing reality that Jesus was willing to be born in a stable. As king of kings and lord of lords, he should have been born in a palace. And yet he was born into a stable with animals. And you know what animals do. I mean, this, this place was not the cleanest place. Right? There's, there's hay, and there's smells, and there's animals, and there's... And it's a beautiful picture of the fact that Jesus is willing to be birthed inside of your life, which is what? A stable. It's full of muck and mire. And yet, it's a profound thought that while he's willing to be born into a stable, he refuses to leave it that way. That he wants to grow us up into a temple. That he He wants to mature us. He, he wants to... To changes. He, he wants to transform our lives so that it's no longer a place of muck and mire and animal smells. It, it's actually a place built for the living God. Corporately, yes, but also individually. <clears throat> uh, Leviticus 11.44 says, "...for I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy." And that word again, consecrate, means to be set apart or to make holy or to sanctify. And when you start to walk through Leviticus, it's interesting, over and over and over again, God keeps saying, I'm holy, I'm calling you to be that way too. I'm holy, I'm calling you to be that way too. He says it twice in chapter 11, says it in 19, twice in chapter 20, another time in chapter 21. I mean, he is just going over and over and over on this idea that, hey, you as my people are to be like I am. And hey, just as the temple was set apart and just as the temple was consecrated and made holy, so too the church is to be holy and set apart and consecrated and not like the world around us. And isn't it an interesting thought that the Levites had to wash themselves every time they came into the temple? Why? Because they were going to deal with the sacred things. That they were going to deal with the very presence of God. So I had to cleanse and wash myself. If that was true for the Levites, who had to actually go down to an actual physical temple how much more should that be true of us who are the temple i mean how much more should we have continual washing and cleansing and sanctifying because we are the temple we don't just go and do these activities at a temple we have become the temple and as such we must be made holy we must be made set apart We must allow God to search and and try and see if there's any wicked way amongst us and and remove the dross from our hearts and our minds and our lives. So again, there's this idea that the the Old Testament temple was this place of consecration, a place of sacredness, a place of holiness. Uh, Second, there's this idea that the temple was a place of prayer. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 56, it talks about the fact that, that God's house, this temple, was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. As he comes into the temple, he sees all this buying and selling. And of course, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a lack of consecration. It's bringing the stuff of the world into <clears throat> the house of God. And of course, Jesus throws out the money changers and flips over the tables and runs the animals out, which must have been a fun heyday for him. Uh, but he looks at this whole scene and he says, Is it not written, Again, he's quoting Isaiah, He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So what you see in the Old Testament then is that the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, that it was supposed to be a place that was available for all people to come and pray, regardless of the nation. Do you realize what the church is supposed to be? That the body of Christ, that what we are being built up into, is to be a house of prayer for all the nations? That, that we, we should be the place that is just beseeching the Lord on behalf of the world. That, that we should be a place of escape and refuge. We, we should be a place of petition. We should be a place that, I mean, if someone bumps into your life, they, they shouldn't help but just be just drowned in prayer. Wouldn't that be a neat thought? That because if my life, individually but also corporately, if my life was a place of prayer and someone encountered my life, they shouldn't be able to leave my presence without being prayed for. That as they're leaving, now it doesn't mean I have to like, oh, let's stop and pray, you know. I'm not saying that, but it could be fun too. But what I am saying is wouldn't it be neat if every person that that we encounter in our life we we brought before the Lord? So what happens if we go to the grocery store and, and we see Susie who's checking us out at the at the counter? Why don't we spend a moment and pray for Susie? That God would radically get a hold of her life, that God would put people in her life that, that would press her into the reality of the gospel. What would happen if as you were watching the news and hearing about all the craziness, instead of getting frustrated, you would use all that stuff to, as, a, as a reminder to petition the Lord for mercy. Maybe we shouldn't be watching the news anyway, but, but if you watch the news, or if you heard about some of the craziness that's going on, hypothetically, if, it ever, you know, if craziness would ever happen in our world, hypothetically, and you happen to hear about it, what would happen if that actually caused us to pray? And what, what would happen if that would immediately turn us to God saying, God, I, we desperately need you. What if the things that you read would cause you to be a place of prayer? And wouldn't it be neat if you as, as a person, as a Christian, was known as a person of prayer? That you were a house of prayer for all the nations. A uh, third, it's interesting, the, the temple of the Old Testament was a place of worship. Uh, Psalm 138 verse 2 Uh, Psalm 138 says this, I will worship before your holy temple and will praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word above all your name. Uh, When you come into the New Testament and you look uh, in the book of Revelation of the future temple, talking about this heavenly reality, Revelation 11.1 says, uh, John was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God the altar and those who worship there. So what you even see is not only just the Old Testament, but also this heavenly reality, this temple of heaven, it is a place of worship. Well, what should our lives here on, uh, on earth then be? A place of worship. That, that, that we individually and we corporately should be a place of worship. So not merely a place of prayer, but a place of worship. Now for clarity, worship does not mean Singing. Can be singing, but it doesn't mean singing. What is worship? Biblically, worship is everything. And yes, singing is associated with worship a few times in scripture, but more often than not, worship is, is just the everything stuff. So as you gather together on Sunday morning with with your local body and you take tithes and offerings, guess what that's called? Worship. Which we should do right now. We should worship. Uh, Hey, when the, when the preacher preaches, guess what that's called? Worship. Hey, when you have lunch after the service, guess what that's called? Worship. When you take your Sunday afternoon nap, guess what that's called? <laughs> that's called worship. Wouldn't it be great if everything in your life was actually worship? Because it wasn't done for you. It was done as an exaltation and praise to magnify and glorify the Lord. It's like the Philippians one twenty passage Right? It's whether by my life or by death, my death, I want my life, my death, to magnify the Lord. That, that I want everything in my life to give praise and adoration and thanksgiving and glory to Jesus Christ. Right? It's the First 1 Corinthians 10.31 idea that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. See, that's worship. And so as you look at the temple of the Old Testament, what do you see going on? You see worship. You see this thanksgiving and adoration and praise and, and incense. You just see this constant awe of wonder of thanksgiving happening. Guess what your life should be? It should be one of praise and rejoicing and thanksgiving. In fact, doesn't Paul say that a few places? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things. I mean, what is it? That's worship. That that What would it look like if your whole life was wrapped up in that? And everything in your life drove you to prayer. Everything in your life drove you to thanksgiving and praise and just, wow, God, this is a horrible day. Thank you. Because I get to trust you. Wow, Lord, it's getting darker. Which means I guess you're going to have to shine brighter. Lord, I got a flat tire. Praise the Lord. I hate flat tires. <laughs> you know? But Lord, I'm going to worship you in the middle of my flat tire because I'm going to trust you. And I don't know how you're going to leverage this flat tire, but I hey, hey, I got COVID. Praise the Lord. I get a break i got to take a nap. Whatever, you know. But what is it, why doesn't everything cause us to worship and give adoration to him? Because we are to be a place of worship. Uh, number four, the temple of the Old Testament was a place of sacrifice and incense. Right? It was, it was the place where you would bring your daily sacrifices, your yearly sacrifices. It was a place where every morning, every evening, the priest would go into the inner courts and he would put incense upon the incense altar. Uh, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 7 and 8, uh, speaking about this altar of incense that sat right in front of the veil of the Holy of Holies, it says, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lambs. He shall burn incense on it. And, and when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. A perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So there was this constant incense. There was this smell that was constantly happening in the temple. Isn't that a great thought when you come into the New Testament? That when you come in the New Testament, the body of Christ, Paul says, has a smell. That there's this incense happening. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That Jesus was a sweet-smelling incense unto the Father. That what was, his, what was his offering? What was his sacrifice upon the cross? It was a sweet-smelling incense that perfumed heaven. But then you come into 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul says your life is to be that. That your life is to be a, an incense, a sweet-smelling fragrance. Second Corinthians two fourteen through 16. Let me read this. It says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. What a great, great passage. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma of death leading to death and the other an aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Paul says, do you know what you are? You are a diffuser. And you know what a diffuser is, right? I mean, several years ago, my, my aunt, who does the whole oil thing, uh, bought me a diffuser. And she says, here you go. Here's a few oils. Put the water in it. Put a few drops in and just turn it on. So I put the water in, put a few drops in, turn it on. And I, I, was a, I was marveled because all this thing does is spit at you. <laughs> right? You just turn this thing on and just pss, 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 and it just spits at you. And it only takes a matter of a few moments before that fills the entire room with the smell and the fragrance and the the health benefits of the oil, right? <laughs> to make the sales pitch for the oil thing, right? And and it's it's, this, it's this aroma. Paul says, "Do you know what you are? You are a diffuser. What are you doing? You're going out into your world and you're spitting. You're just pst, 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 all over people. That's what you're doing. Don't literally do that. I mean, don't spit. But but that's what you are. You are a diffuser." So, hey, when someone cuts you off in traffic, what are you doing? Psst, psst, psst all over them. And what if instead of giving them the one-way sign and, and cursing them and telling you how much that you hate them because they cut you off, what if you would just psst, 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 Jesus all over them? And what is on the inside, what God's doing on the inside, what if that would come on the outside? And you would diffuse the fragrance of the Lord, which, by, by the way, is hallmarked first and foremost by love. Well, what if someone would bump into you, and as they bump into you, just all over them. And what you give them? You give them Jesus. Right? And what's on the inside somehow comes on the outside. Paul says that we are a fragrance of life to the believers, but a fragrance of, or a stench, a fragrance of death to unbelievers. That the fragrance of life, the fragrance of love, the fragrance of Jesus to an unbeliever smells like death. It's a stench. But haven't you been around somebody who's so wrapped up in Jesus it's like there is a there's a fragrance. It's not you. Have, it's not like you. Literally smell it. It's just there's there's an aroma of their life. Right. Hang out with Sandy McConaughey. What do you what do you have? You have a smell. Sandy smells. Isn't that great. But it is a sweet smelling aroma, and it's not her perfume. I know this. It's Jesus. Sandy smells like Jesus. Why? Because she she cannot help herself but talk about Jesus. And that's beautiful. See, that's that's the life of a Christian. So what is, again, the Old Testament, it's a place of sacrifice. The the temple, it's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of incense. What is your life supposed to be? It's a place of incense. It's 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 supposed to be an aroma to the world. That you are to diffuse the fragrance of God to your world. Romans chapter 12, you are to be a living sacrifice. That, that, That we as the body of Christ is a constant living sacrifice. We are the incense. We are the perfume of heaven to this world. Again, it's, it's a foreshadow uh, from the Old Testament. Number five, this was so interesting to me, the temple of the Old Testament was also the location of the Lord's treasury. That in the temple is where all the riches, all the gold pieces, all, hey, the treasury of God was housed in the temple. Do you know what you're supposed to be in this world as as a New Testament believer? You are to be the Lord's treasury. That that you are to house the treasure of heaven, which is Jesus, by the way. He is our richness. But let me just give you a couple passages. Uh, 2 Kings 24, 13 talks about the fact that here's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He comes in to Jerusalem, ransacks, and takes out all the treasure from the temple. But if, when you look at that idea, again, that the, the temple was a place of treasury, and you come into 2 Corinthians 4, 6-10, listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians and a lot of this idea of a, tr- of a treasure. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, "...for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness." Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side but we're not crushed. We are perplexed but we are not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. We are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Paul says, do you know what you are? You are a earthen vessel. You are a jar of clay. Or another way you could translate that is, you are a cracked pot. Which is actually what Paul's talking about. That you're this clay vessel, and it actually has this little crack down it. Which doesn't sound that appealing. A a, a pot that has a crack in it is weak. It actually is insufficient. Guess what you are? You are a cracked pot. You are weak. But the beauty of that is that which goes on the inside, which Paul calls a treasure, and what is that treasure? It is actually the presence and the glory of God that we have this inside of us. And what's amazing is if you have a crack in it, a crack in yourself, guess what's going to be oozing forth out of your life? The treasure. So here you are. You are an earthen vessel. You are a jar of clay or you're this cracked pot that has this treasure on the inside, that you have be actually become the treasury of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, you have this treasure, this life within you. And because you have this wonderful crack in your life, it's gonna be oozing forth, which I just, I love that idea. And there's, you are not to keep it for yourself. This thing is to be expended and pouring forth out of you. And what if you would get so tight with Jesus that his life would be so big in you? that his life would begin to ooze from every pore of your body. Do you know what we call people who live like this? Christians. And again, I think there's this beautiful parallel between the treasury of the Old Testament and the treasury of your life. That as the temple that you are growing up into, we get to be the place where the treasure is placed, which is actually Jesus. He is the treasure itself. And lastly, the temple, again, was the dwelling place of God. That the temple, specifically the Holy of Holies, it was understood as the place where God literally dwelt. His manifest presence was literally there. And the original intent of this whole thing was that it was relational. Now, albeit in the Old Testament, it was rather distant. (laughs) God's over there, I'm over here, and i got to go visit him. But it was still Relational. That God wanted a relationship with his people. Therefore, he planted himself smack dab in the middle of his people. And he beckoned them in. Hey, come. Come worship. Come sacrifice. Come spend time. You realize that's still true in, in this new reality. That we have become the temple. And what is God doing? It says in our passage, he is building us up together as the dwelling place of God. So what is, what, is this, what is the church? What is the body of Christ? What is your life supposed to be marked by? The very presence of God himself. That just as the Old Testament had the manifest presence of God in the world, so your life right now, so too the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, is to house his presence. This isn't a come down and let's sing songs about him as much as it is let's come together and worship the fact that he is in our midst. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we would have conversations with one another and realize that Jesus, through his Spirit, was smack dab in the middle of that conversation? That he's not just out there somewhere. He lives inside of us. He dwells within his people. That we have become the very dwelling place of the life of the Spirit of God. That is so, such a radical reality in my mind. That, that I don't have to go visit God. I literally house God. And we have become his, his dwelling place. And I just want to conclude this whole thing. When, when Solomon re- took the tabernacle and, and made it into a temple, and they were dedicating the temple, I, I love what 2 Chronicles 7 says. Solomon is coming and he, he's dedicating this building that has been made, this physical structure, as the dwelling place of God. And just listen to what happens. Uh, this is 2 Chronicles 7, 1-5. It says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces on the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of sacrifice. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. You realize that what that is is a picture in the Old Testament. That is to be the reality of us in the new covenant. That, that just as fire came down and licked up all the sacrifices and God's presence filled, the glory of God filled the temple, don't you think that should be the reality of church today? That when we gather together as the body of Christ, that there should be, there should be a reality of Jesus that it's not about us and about our preference of worship or our preference of color carpet, the color of the carpet, that that this is not about us and what we want and what we can get out out, out of the church. This is about Jesus. And what would it look like if we would crave a movement of God in our day like Solomon had in his day? That if we, in fact, are the temple, then his presence should house us like it housed the temple. That the purity of the temple that was back then should be the purity of our temple here. That that the place of prayer that it was back there should be the place of prayer that it is now. That the place of worship that it was then should be the place of worship that that it is now. And I don't know about you, but the conviction that I I have in this passage is that if we are, in fact, the temple of the Holy Spirit, if, in fact, we are to be be grown up into this temple as a dwelling place of God, uh, anything, (laughs) I don't know how to say this too strongly, or strong enough. But anything that doesn't belong has to be removed. There is to be no impurities in the temple. There is to be no profane thing in the temple. There is to be, and yet when we look at the body of Christ today, I think one of the reasons why we're not seeing just the ma- the, the majesty and the glory of Jesus in the body of Christ is because the church is not a temple. It has become a whorehouse to use a, to grind, to gri- yeah, that word. To use a profane word, right? That, that we've allowed the things of the world, we've allowed idolatry and the, and the pollution of the world inside the body of Christ, and we are not a pure and spotless bride. We are full of junk. And yet we are to be a temple. We are to be the holiest place on planet Earth today. That when someone sees the body of Christ or sees our lives, they should go, wow, I know that there is still a God in the universe. That there is not a doubt in my mind that God still reigns. That he still sits upon the throne. That I know that, how, how could the world be atheist? How, how could the world be, live in this agnostic reality when there are Christians in the land? Because if Christians are in the land, they should see the reality of Christ in our lives and go, I may not agree with that, but I can't deny that. See, I, that's what I want for the body of Christ. So what is it in our personal lives, what is it in the church that has to go? I mean, Paul gives a great list in Galatians 5, right? As he's comparing the, the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the flesh should not be in the church. That anxiety and fear and jealousy and greed and envy and hatred and selfish ambition and worry and sexual immorality and pride do not have a place within us. Or if you want the passage in Romans, Romans 1, uh, Paul gives an entire, uh, another list He says, uh, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then he gives you a list of the things that are not fitting uh, in the believer's life. Being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. I mean, sadly that sounds like our world today. And sadly that actually sounds like a lot of the church today. See, what if we were actually marked by the life of Jesus? What if, in fact, we were consecrated? What if we were holy and set apart and given unto the Lord? What if we were sacrifices, living sacrifices, and fragrances of incense Unto our Savior, or as again as I read earlier that Leviticus eleven forty four passage, for I am the Lord your God; you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. What if we were a pure and spotless bride in today's world? What if we actually were being? What if we were growing up into a temple? What if God was building us into the dwelling place of God? And isn't it just a phenomenal thought that the life and death of Jesus? Allowed us access into the very presence of God, that we have, that we get to enter into his presence, and he actually takes his presence and enters into us. And we have actually become the dwelling place of God on this planet. So again, there's this idea of set apart and made holy, a place of prayer, a place of worship, the continual fragrance and sacrifice to God, the place of treasury, and literally the dwelling place of God Almighty. What if we had that as individuals? What if we had that as the corporate body? That would turn the world upside down. And isn't it interesting that this isn't up for debate? This isn't even up for question. Paul says, this is what's going on in you. If, if you have him, could we throw ourselves afresh upon Jesus? Could we allow him through his spirit to poke and press anything in our lives that needs to be removed? Could we calm and humble repentance before the cross and just jesus i need you and i i want no wicked way within me we need that as the body of christ today well let's pray Uh, lord we do love you lord what an amazing reality that the old testament temple has become the reality of the new testament believer that what was going on as a shadow of the old testament is to be the reality of our life today Lord, we desperately need to be set apart and made holy. Lord, somehow could, could you give us such a yearning for holiness? But Lord, it's not merely holiness that we're after. We're after you. And Lord, I'm convinced that if we had you, we would become holy. So Lord, don't don't allow us to have holiness that turns into legalism. Don't let us have holiness outside of Jesus. Lord, let us get so wrapped up in Jesus that we can't help but be consecrated, sanctified, sanctified set apart, made holy. Lord, allow our lives to be places of prayer. Lord, I pray that every person that encounters our life would somehow, they, they could not slip, slip away from us without having encountered prayer from our lives on their behalf. Lord, would you make your body of Christ a place of prayer for all the nations? Lord, could you make us individually and corporately places of worship that whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, all would be done for the glory of you Lord, Lord, could we be a continual fragrance and a living sacrifice on your behalf? That, that we would constantly be surrendering, surrendering ourselves, that we would be abiding in the vine, dependent upon you every moment of every day, that we would be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. And Lord, may our lives give out the sweet fragrance of Jesus. And yes, it may be a stench to this world, but Lord, oh, what a smell it is to fellow believers. Lord, may we be diffusers of your life, of your love, of your grace, of your gospel. And that everywhere we go, we are just pst, 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 all over everybody because we just can't help ourselves. And that which you are doing inside of us just has to come forth. Lord, let us be earthen vessels. Maybe I'll say, it. thank you that we are earthen vessels that get to house the treasure of heaven, which is your presence. Lord, thank you that we are your dwelling place. And that we don't have to go worship down at some building, but we have become the building. Lord, don't let us take that for granted. And Lord, would you freshly move within your body? Would you move across the world? And would you convict your saints of of anything and everything that should not be within our lives? Would you go through every crevice of our soul? Would you go through our mind? Would you go through our motives? Would you go through our attitudes? Would you go through our language, our actions, our thoughts, and anything and everything that does not measure up to the perfect standard of Jesus Christ, Lord, would you bring us to a place of repentance? Would you make your bride a pure and spotless bride once again? Lord, may we grow up into a temple, and in so doing, Jesus, may we have such a hunger, a burn, a desire for the world to know you, that we are not content with the temple the size that it is, That there are so many other stones that desperately need to be a part of this temple. So, Lord, would you give us a burden for souls? Would you give us a burden for the people who are dying and perishing and going to hell? Lord, for those who are are causing craziness and uh, propagating darkness, Lord, I pray that we would not just be content or wish their downfall, but Lord, we would desire that they would be saved. So, Lord, we ask for mercy. Lord, we ask for freedom. We ask that you would bring them low to a place of humility. We ask that you would bring them to the end of their selves, that they would realize that there is still a God in heaven and that they need you. And Lord, may the world, as they look at the body of Christ, know that there is still a God. And as grand as the heavens may be, as grand as this universe is, it is still but winky dink in your palm that you are far greater. Lord, let us live as Christians in this day. Lord, let us be built up into this holy dwelling place that you dwell through your spirit. Lord, what a privilege we have as believers. We love you, Jesus. We give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website, at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.